Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Did you know two in every three people with knee osteoarthritis also have another coexisting health condition? How does one approach the juggling act of clinical practice to deliver high-quality musculoskeletal care while also helping patients deal with other things that can affect their health? What role can musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinicians play in breaking out of a siloed approach to healthcare where we get so focused on dealing with one problem? Søren Skoll is a physiotherapist, Professor of Exercise and Human Health from the University of Southern Denmark and Head of the Multi-Professional Research Unit at Slagelse Hospital. He joins us today to explain comorbidity, multimorbidity and to champion the role of musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinicians in helping patients manage their complex health needs. Søren, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you. You're an expert in osteoarthritis treatments, especially in exercise, and we're going to get into exercise therapy a little bit later in the podcast. But first up today, can we talk a little bit about the reality of clinical practice for musculoskeletal clinicians? And that would be really that folks are typically working with patients who've got other stuff going on. So more than simply their osteoarthritis or their musculoskeletal condition, whether that's diabetes or a heart condition or or high blood pressure. What does this mean for how clinicians approach developing and progressing a treatment plan? You know, I think both as a researcher and as a clinician, you tend to specialize in one particular area that might be musculoskeletal conditions or even osteoarthritis or even knee osteoarthritis, which I've focused on a lot. But It came as a surprise to me at least a few years back when I started focusing on comorbidity and and multimorbidity that most people with one chronic condition actually have two or more chronic conditions. So actually, it's, it's more the norm to have more chronic conditions. And I think that affects how clinicians and researchers approach uh, the, the subject of, for example, osteoarthritis. Because if you, in a trial, exclude all people with other chronic conditions, then you're actually excluding the majority. And if you, as a clinician, are not considering the other conditions, you're actually not getting the full picture. Søren, can you give us a little bit of a context here? How big is the problem of musculoskeletal conditions and comorbidity? How many people can we expect to have a coexisting musculoskeletal condition with a comorbidity? What we see, at least in some of the more common chronic musculoskeletal conditions like osteoarthritis and low back pain, is that it's more than half. It's actually two out of three people with osteoarthritis of the knee and hip also have another chronic condition. Even though we believe that that chronic conditions like osteoarthritis is a conditions of older age, and even more so, I guess, with multimorbidity having more than two or two or more chronic conditions. But in fact, if you look at it in absolute numbers, there are more people with multimorbidity that are younger than 65 years of age than older than 65 years of age. And and bringing that back to osteoarthritis, we actually see that people who have a knee injury at young age, 50% of them could actually have knee osteoarthritis 10 to 15 years uh, 
later, which would mean that you could have osteoarthritis as at 25 or 30. Yeah, and I think it's really busting that kind of stereotype that as you get older, you're going to see more multimorbidity or more comorbidity. It's, it's a really striking fact. Thank you for sharing it. So I guess it's about thinking about patients as a whole person rather than thinking about I'm a physio or I'm a musculoskeletal rehab clinician, therefore I only treat the musculoskeletal condition. And I think the other important point, and I'm glad you bring up research so early in the podcast, is that when we as clinicians are reading research, it's important for us to be careful and, and to look at what are the the inclusion and exclusion criteria for this trial, if we're looking at it, say, an intervention trial. Have they excluded everyone who's got a particular heart condition or have they excluded everyone with diabetes? And is that research going to really apply to the patient who's in front of me? Now, you introduced two terms just then, and I'd like to take a moment to get you to define them, comorbidity and multimorbidity. Saren, what's the difference there? Comorbidity tells you that there is an index condition. So if you're focusing as a clinician or researcher on osteoarthritis and the other conditions they might have, then you would call it comorbidity. While multimorbidity has no index condition, there are many, many definitions actually for multimorbidity. The most commonly used is two or more chronic conditions without any of them being the index condition. I think personally think that all clinicians are thinking and are considering the other chronic conditions that the, the patient has, but approaching the person with the eyes of multimorbidity is probably not something that most people do because the, the healthcare system is very much developed and, and framed around uh, you know, silos or specialization in, in specific areas. And I'm going to come back to silos because I think this is really important for us to discuss. And I know that you're you're passionate about breaking down those silos. But what I'd first like to ask you is to talk a little bit about how clinicians can consider other conditions when assessing and treating patients with musculoskeletal conditions. Why and how? Many people with multimorbidities or two or more chronic conditions are or spending a lot of time going to different care providers. If they're lucky, they're getting the same advice. If they're unlucky, they get different advice based on the different chronic conditions. So we need to be sure that we are helping the patients the best we can. So if they're already overwhelmed with what you could call treatment burden, so they have a high burden of treatment because they're seeking care for many conditions, then we need to ensure that we're not just putting more burden on their shoulders. As we know, exercise and other treatments that require patients to actually actively engage would require the patients to be able to do so. So by covering their needs, by covering their preferences for treatment, their health priorities, their lifestyle, and of course, uh, goals, Fewer goals is actually something that is more helpful in improving health behavior and outcome. Bringing it back to the person and thinking about what's the overall thing that we're trying to achieve here? What else is going on in your life and in your other healthcare um, environment? And how do we, again, work together to try and achieve the ultimate goal for you as a, as a person rather than the ultimate, say, musculoskeletal goal? So that's the why. 
Let's talk about the how. So let's take it back to your specialist field in osteoarthritis. How does how would it apply to someone who say come to see you for osteoarthritis pain, knee pain, and also has a, a diagnosis of diabetes? I'd say that probably when they approach uh, clinicians with knee pain, knee pain is probably one of the top priorities since they're seeking care for it. But of course, we need to to consider the other conditions. There might be contraindications, in fact, for exercise that relates, for example, to people with, with heart failure as one example. Not that exercising with heart failure is a problem, but if, for example, you're unable to carry out physical activity without discomfort or having symptoms of heart failure at rest, then you should probably be more focused on ensuring that they're actually capable of doing the exercise. Also, you should consider whether other types of exercise might be important to to include in the treatment plan. For example, if you had envisioned that you would focus on strength exercise, which was is one of the types of exercise that is effective in people with osteoarthritis, you could consider aerobic exercise, or at least adding some aerobic exercise. And it strikes me, Soren, that to effectively work with a patient to manage whether it's knee pain in osteoarthritis or, you know, whatever the musculoskeletal problem is, shoulder pain, whatever we're talking about, it strikes me that there is very much a team-based approach is going to be helpful here. And we talked at the start about silos and breaking down silos. So how do you see musculoskeletal rehab clinicians? How do you see them working together and playing a role in preventing and treating comorbidity and multimorbidity? Well, first of all, I think it's important for, for everyone working with rehabilitation to be aware of that even though we might look at exercise as a treatment for one specific condition, we actually know that it's effective as treatment of 26 chronic conditions. We also know that inactivity is a risk factor for 35 chronic conditions. That means that we actually have a very powerful tool to provide patients, probably the most powerful tool across conditions, which is exercise and helping people be more physically active. That said, it's of course important as well to, to consider the complexity of multimorbidity. That is, we need the, the collaboration across professions. If a patient has depression, of course, we need to support that person getting help for depression as well. That could be with a psychologist or psychiatrist. If the person is taking several different medications, of course, we need to include their general practitioner. And you could go on in that uh, way with different physicians working in different specialties. So we have a powerful tool, but collaboration across uh, different specialities is just key to helping these people improve their quality of life, which is probably the most important outcome when you look across conditions and not specifically on knee pain. And what do you see as the key to this collaboration or perhaps what are the the most important barriers to better collaboration? Because my sense is that clinicians broadly are happy to work together and want to work together and want to help patients, but there's barriers there clearly that are stopping that. So what do you see as the biggest challenges to overcome here? Well, we could move a bit back to the, the silos. We have in recent years or many years moved into more and more specialization, which is good 
for the individual conditions. That's for sure. But the problem is that uh, if a person has several chronic conditions, he or she needs to attend several clinicians. And if these clinicians are not collaborating, which is, of course, very challenging, you have a busy work schedule and perhaps the, the other clinician is working on a different hospital or even in a different part of, of the, the region, then it is quite difficult to, to ensure that you're collaborating on helping the individual patient. In recent years, uh, different approaches to this collaboration has uh, been tried out. One is, is called a care manager, where there is one person being kind of the coordinator and helping the patients across different specialties. Uh, I think that is something that is uh, looking encouraging and interesting for the future for people with several chronic conditions. And, and is, it is being tried out in, in different trials. That, of course, requires a lot of work because that's not how we are organizing healthcare right now. But I think if we want to help these people uh, manage their full, their all their condition and, and get back to higher quality of life and, and being more physically active, we need to make sure that someone is, is helping the patient understand and also coordinate care across uh, specialties. Now, Soren, you've been heavily involved in the GLAD program, the Good Living with Osteoarthritis Denmark program. And I think I can be so bold as to say that is a, a shining light and a success story of effective musculoskeletal care delivery in our profession. What are the things that have worked well in GLAD that you see could apply in other conditions or in other scenarios that we're talking about here with multimorbidity and comorbidity? I think we could go on talking about that, not forever, but for a long time, because one of the challenges that are is that, that there are specific guidelines, clinical practice guidelines for specific conditions. If we're lucky, they're mentioning other chronic conditions, but they're only giving you know few suggestions on how to actually implement the guidelines in practice. And that is quite challenging. And I think that's part of the success story with GLAD is actually that it delivers a treatment package that the clinicians can take home and give to the patient right away, feeling comfortable that is reflecting the evidence and the clinical practice guidelines. So having this kind of toolbox to bring home will ensure that clinicians know what to do, and then by also evaluating how this is, is working out, we actually also get data to support whether or not we should adapt the intervention to specific subgroups or you know, whether different subgroups perhaps need extra attention or extra treatment. And I think that's part of, of the success with GLAD that I hope we can expand to other areas, packaging the clinical practice guidelines into something that clinicians can actually apply in practice instead of having to try to invent something just based on, based on, on written words in a practice guidelines from a heart condition perspective, from a diabetes perspective, from an osteoarthritis perspective, and trying to bring that together in one treatment. That is uh, quite a challenge. Yeah, and I think GLAD is very much focused on exercise therapy and education and primarily delivered by physiotherapists. How do you, within the GLAD program, 
break down some of those silos and encourage collaboration and, and bring in collaboration with general practice or, or other clinicians as needed? It is uh, definitely important. Part of the course is also informing the physios about what have been successful before. What we've seen is that physios who have very close contact to their DP, the local DP, get more referrals, but they are also better at collaborating in helping the patient. I would say that we're developing a similar approach to people with multimorbidity. And here we see that especially the self-management part needs to reflect more professions as it's necessary to focus not only on physical activity, but also on on diet, on sleeping, on, on, you know, some of the other challenges you might have as a person living Stress with. management. Yeah, exactly. D- exactly. You talked about so, depression. Yeah, so we have in, included in that uh, meditation exercises, um, dietitians are involved and, and so on. And that is definitely important. And I think also for the, the future of, of osteoarthritis, uh, even though it, it, it seems simple as compared to multimorbidity, it is not that simple. And I think collaborating even further is, of course, essential for for the purpose of helping people. And you talked about GLAD being a kind of package of care and empowering people to take a package and deliver it. I think some people might think of that as a kind of recipe book approach and rail at this idea that clinicians are turning, uh, you're turning a clinician into a technician. How do you allay their fears that Glad the Glad program is not simply a recipe book that people just blindly deliver. I think that is a common common misunderstanding about the Glad program that is just a one size fits all program. Actually, it's more principles of neuromuscular exercise that the, the the clinicians can go home and then adapt to their individual patients because we know that having a one size fits all approach will, of course, help the patients. We know that just exercising or just doing something will help your, you improve your pain and function. But individualizing is also a way to ensure that you actually account for the preferences and needs and, and, and so on uh, of the patients. What we see in, in people with osteoarthritis and more chronic conditions is that everything is, is worse the more chronic, chronic conditions you have. You have more pain, you have more severe, severe functional limitations. You take more pain medication, worse quality of life, and so on. And that is the same across conditions. The more conditions you have, the worse you're off with your health status. And that's also where it's so important that we help clinicians adapt the the treatment also in, in GLAD to the individual patient. And we've had your colleague, Professor Eva Roos, who was instrumental in setting up the GLAD program on JOSPT Insights podcast a few episodes ago. So I'd encourage folks to scroll back through the feed and check that podcast out for more details about the neuromuscular training program and the the, um, education intervention as well for GLAD. Now, Søren, we have been talking about exercise therapy broadly, and I promised we'd come back to exercise and osteoarthritis. And I don't think we can let you go without talking about the recent START trial that was published in JAMA at the end of February. For our busy busy listeners who haven't had a chance yet to catch up with the START trial, can you give us the 60-second summary of that trial, please? So first of all, I think it's a, a very good trial, very well performed by an excellent team. 
it is a, a study to, that investigated whether high-intensity strength training reduced knee pain and knee joint compressive forces more than low-intensity strength training and what they call a, an attention control group, which received uh, extensive self-management uh, sessions to help manage their symptoms on their own. What the study found, which was uh, probably a bit uh, surprising, is that in patients with knee osteoarthritis, uh, high-intensity strength chain did, did actually not improve pain and compressive forces more than low-intensity strength training and the intention control group. Of course, there could be many reasons for that, but one of the conclusions that I've seen on social media that exercise doesn't work is, of course, not true. What the study shows, also looking at the within-group changes, is that all groups improve. And I think a very important uh, take-home message from that stu study is that if a patient prefer receiving multiple self-management sessions as they did in, in the trial, then, of course, that is also a treatment that, that might be effective. The other thing about this trial that intrigued me and I was really pleased to see was the length of the intervention. Their strength training intervention went for 18 months and the attention control or education, that intervention also went for, I think, a 12-month period. So, you know, I think a, a criticism in the past of some of these trials looking at exercise for treating lots of different conditions is that either patients are not prescribed sufficient dose so either the intensity is not high enough or that the duration is not long enough. So what's your take on the content of these different exercise programs, Soren? Well, the, the, the self-management or education or attention control group got 24 sessions over 18 months. And as you said, the other two groups also exercised for, for 18 months, which I agree is, and three times a week, which I agree is an extensive program. My take on it is, which probably relates very much to what I said before, is that, that it is important to, to focus on the preferences and needs of the individual patient. That means that self-management can be effective for a lot of people. And exercise, of course, is effective not only for the knee pain, but actually also for a lot of other conditions that we talked about before, which I think a study focusing on knee osteoarthritis like this one is, of course, not focused on, but I think that's important to, to acknowledge as well. So for the future, I think we have seen a few studies of these comparing different types of exercise, and mostly they're pointing to the fact that there are no difference. And that is also mm, part of the explanation for that is, of course, that it's not only the exercise on its own that helps patients improve in their pain. We know there are, with all treatments, but also with exercise, contextual factors are so important. So that also relates to the attention, but it also relates to how the physio or the healthcare provider approached you, how much you believe in the treatment, also how invasive it is comparing surgery to exercise. I think it's very important to, to recognize uh, that when you evaluate the results of exercise, that of course, it's not only the exercise that is actually helping patients. I'm so glad you bring it back to the individual and to the individual patient. I think that's a great way for us to finish today's podcast. Soren, thanks so much for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thank you for having me. 
for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Thank you.